Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Thank you everybody for joining us. We have an extra special guest, Preston Pish. I spoke with Preston just this morning, 20k day. I'm rushing to turn this around to get this one out as a special episode because it's Preston, man, and we all love Preston. Everything that you've done in the space, everything you've done to help us understand macro and bring us into Bitcoin. Big thank you on behalf of the whole community, man. We will get into this pretty quickly because we discuss so many great stuff, uh, so many great things. Uh, before we do, I want to give a shill for coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go start stacking some sats. Have you seen the ad campaign they did in London? They have awesome ads all over the train stations and the tubes. It's brilliant. You've got to go check it out. Go check out their Twitter and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Don't forget our cousins across the pond. Thank you everybody over there for listening and tuning in. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. They have you covered in every single state in the US. You can go start stacking sats. They're going to hold your hand. Both companies have brilliant customer service. That is swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. You will get a free 10 bucks to start your stacking journey. Big shout out, as usual, at Adam Woodhams1 for helping me put this show together, at Jim Reaper Music for putting together the website, and all of you guys, anybody that listens to the show and shares it and comments and retweets it and rates it, we're all part of this. We deserve this, guys. This is, you know, I'm pretty speechless. Here we are, new all-time highs. Let's go. You know this is just the beginning. I'll catch you after the show, guys. Enjoy. Okay, Preston, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Great to see you. Hey, great to be back. And we have the usual Lauren uh, question for you, and Caitlin's coming to ask you one as well. So why don't we go with Caitlin? Yeah. Okay. What is uh, value investing? Uh, this is actually pretty straightforward. So value investing is just this idea that you can calculate or determine the value of a business. And then all you're doing is you're just comparing what you think the business is worth compared to what the market is trading it for. So let's just, as an example, let's say you like Apple and you want to buy their stock and let's say their stock is trading for a hundred dollars, but you think it's worth $200 then you step in and you buy that stock for $100 because you think it's worth double that. That's value investing. And, and I think a, a really key tenant of value investing is that one share of a business is the same as owning the entire business. So if you could buy one share of the business, it's the same as if you bought every single share that's on the market. 
And I think that that frame of reference and thinking in those terms is really helpful for people because a lot of the times they're just treating it like it's this object of not a business, <laughs> but uh, value investing really relies on that principle of thinking of it. Like if you were going to buy a coffee shop on Main Street, you'd value the whole business before you'd buy it. And value investing treats buying shares of stock the exact same way. If you're buying one, it's the same as buying the whole business. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Now, Lauren, um, this is the one that's coming out of left field for you, Preston, because we, we were, we were out on a walk the other day and something, something flew over us, didn't it? And what was your question to me? Uh, how do helicopters work? Yeah. Well, how do helicopters fly? Yeah. And I said, I got a guy coming on the show that might know a little thing about that. So. Boy, I'll tell you, that's, that's a question I still uh, contend with these days. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is a very tricky thing. It's, it's way more complex than an airplane. Helicopters do not want to fly. If you're up in the air and you take your hands off the controls, it is going to try to crash itself. Um, if you're in an airplane, believe it or not, when I was... When I was studying engineering, we would go out and do flight labs, but we'd do it in a Cessna or like a small uh, fixed wing aircraft. And what I found fascinating about a fixed wing aircraft is when you're flying along and let's just say you're going 120 knots and you push forward on the yoke and then you take your hands off the controls, the aircraft will porpoise and want to get to it. As, as long as you have it all trimmed out, it'll actually porpoise and want to come back to the steady state that you were flying at before with your hands completely off the controls. You do something like that in a helicopter, it does not work like that. Um, one of the things that I'll tell you about a helicopter that's really interesting uh, that I, I don't think most people know, I know I didn't know it before I got into it. Um, when, you're, when you're flying at a hover and the helicopter is just hovering there, you're using your, your pedals a lot to make sure that the nose stays straight. And what you're doing with the pedals is you're actually adjusting the pitch in the tail rotor. Uh, the, the little rotor that's sideways on the back. And you're, you're, you're using that tail rotor to make sure that the nose of the helicopter is staying straight. When you start flying forward, and you, let's say you're going 100 knots in a helicopter going forward, the, the tail rotor is obviously still providing some type of uh, support, but the, the vertical fin in the back is what actually provides the stabilization and forward flight in order to make sure that the nose. So there's like this transition point when you're in a hover and you're going at a low speed. And then when you transition, the, the tail fin actually takes over to keep the stability on the helicopter. But there's, there's a lot of crazy things. When you really start thinking about how helicopters fly, this is the last thing that I'll tell you that I think is really fascinating about it. When you're in forward flight, you're, your rotor on the one side is producing more lift than the, the blade on the opposite side. And when you think about that dynamic, you would think that the helicopter would want to roll from a vector standpoint. And so the way that this was overcome uh, is through flapping. So when you look at the, the way that the blades are attached on the helicopter, they will actually flap. And that flapping creates enough lift on the counter on the side that's that's going the opposite direction of the helicopter that's not producing as much lift that flapping actually creates enough lift to keep the helicopter from twisting and turning upside down while it's going in forward flight it's it's quite amazing some of the things that are happening 
Well, now you know, Lauren. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. That's a fun question, but it's it gets very, very deep in engineering because it is very it's it's a marvel that it can actually happen. To be quite honest yeah. with you. Okay, you guys finished with the questions? Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. You guys had great questions. <laughs> Good job. All right. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I need to go eat lunch. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> you can't have more fun than that. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, do you mind if we geek out a little bit more on, on, on that stuff? Because I've never really heard oh, you. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's do it. I mean, I, I'm sure the listeners are like, well, let's get to the Bitcoin stuff. But, uh, <laughs> you, you know, your, your past... Uh, Obviously, I've checked out. Uh, you, you have it all up there on LinkedIn, and it's pretty amazing the the things that uh, that you were doing in the military, uh, flying the the Apache helicopters, right? Yep. That's that's those things are just nuts. I remember growing up as a kid, I had the picture of uh, an AH sixty four on my wall. Oh no and way! I, was it yeah, an A I, model or a D model? Was it a longbow or or the original? Did it have the disc on the top? No, it didn't. So that's, yeah, that's a radar that, that was an upgrade. That's called a longbow when it has the radar on the top, the second, the second generation, basically. Now there's a third generation out there that, that involves, uh, you can do uh, manned, unmanned teaming where you're flying with a UAV, but you're controlling some of those capabilities inside the cockpit while you're flying the Apache. So there's some new capabilities that are pretty neat with what's going on in the space. They are just the, the most amazing looking machines and they, they buzz over my parents' place all the time in, in the UK because they live near the, uh, the US base. Oh, okay. And these things, yeah, they're, they're, they're always flying over. It's a beast. Uh, the first time that you do gunnery and that kind of stuff in it, I mean, it's, it's quite incredible to experience. There, it's, and there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on in the cockpit. <laughs> I can't imagine, actually, and I'm sure nobody else can. And I can't really imagine many people have ever got to speak to somebody that's piloted one of these things. So could you give us just like, uh, I mean, what, what is it like to just sit in that thing and take that thing off? And well, unbelievable. I, I would tell you more that, uh, you know, in the training scenario, it's really hard to actually train for what it's like when you actually put it into application, because the, the radio calls, when, when you're in a combat situation and you're dealing with troops in contact, uh, the radio calls are extremely difficult to manage while you're doing everything else because there's everyone in the world wants to talk to you at that moment. And so, you know, I, without getting into the specifics of uh, all the technical capabilities, there, let's just say we're talking to more than two people. We're talking to quite a few more than two people all at the same time. And um, that gets very hard to do because you have to manage the, the way you really kind of manage the conversation because they don't know what you're hearing, right? The people that are talking to you don't know that you're talking to all these other people all at the same time. And so the way that you're kind of managing the conversation is through volume control and, and just trying to be able to prioritize and you can't see what they're seeing. You don't necessarily know their location real well. And you have to be able to go through the battle space and talk to all these different types of people that you might have never even talked to even once. So being able to kind of put 
and piecemeal the, the site picture together while you're flying, while you're managing all your munitions and uh, trying to find this enemy position that you're about to fire upon gets to be a very complicated task and you have to be really good. I would tell you, I think some of the best pilots were guys that were able to prioritize and that are able to have the, the big picture first, and then they're able to zoom into lower levels at a really quick pace and be able to capture all that information extremely fast. So, and I'm in, and here's one other consideration. There was times I would, I would fly with, uh, like we call them front seaters, the, the gunner in the, in the front is the front seater, the guy in the back's the pilot in command. Um, you have to, it might be a new pilot and they might be very, you know, they, they, they might need assistance as well. So that you're dealing with all the people on the radios, you're dealing with the front seater, and then you're dealing with uh, another aircraft because we would fly in teams. So then you're having the radio calls with them to coordinate where they need to be positioned and whatnot. So if you're an air mission commander, you're dealing with uh, not just your own aircraft, but all the other aircraft. So it gets busy. It gets really, really, really busy. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. How did, what, what led up to this? Obviously, uh, West Point, and but but uh, why why that trajectory? What you know, as a young man, as young Preston, what was the? Um... You know, I think it was more. It was more. I wanted to go to West Point because I wanted the challenge, and I I liked the uh, discipline. I, this is going to sound funny. I I felt like if I went to a normal school, I would have been just a total party animal. And so I guess it was me uh, regulating myself that I needed some type of discipline. Not that I was like out of control or anything like that. I just could see myself going to a regular university and just being a maniac, you know? So I was like, Hey, I want to do this. I really like the tradition. I, I, um, I, I wanted to get an engineering degree. I knew that whenever I was before I went to college. And then once you're there, it's kind of like, all right, well, I got to do something after I graduate in the army, the army was such an afterthought for me, which you would think would have been way at the front if you're going to a school like, like West Point. And, um, but anyway, so I'm there at West Point and it's like, okay, so we got this, the, these weeks where we would go do whatever. So like, okay, this, this is tank week. So then you go and you drive a tank, you get to shoot a tank. Then it's field artillery week and you learn how to shoot field artillery. Then it's infantry week and you're sludging around in the woods with no food and, you know, carrying all these munitions and stuff. And, but, uh, we got a helicopter ride when I was there at West point and, uh, you know, the, the pilots took us over these hills. And when you fly helicopter, when you fly helicopters in a combat environment, you try to keep them as low as possible. So if you're in hilly terrain, which we were up there in New York, where West point's at, it's a little hilly. And I mean, they're taking us in and out of these valleys. We're 50 feet off the, the treetops. And I'm thinking, all right, so this is like your profession is to ride in a roller coaster all day. It was like pretty much like my, how I was thinking about it. I was like, yes, I want to ride a roller coaster every day for my job. And uh, so that was, that was it. So then you go into your, your senior year when you get to select it. And luckily enough, my class rank allowed me to select aviation. And, and that was that. And so then you go off to flight school, which is a year to two years. And, and then you go into a regular army unit and, and that's that. And what, um, when, 
when you kind of came out of that and, and fully fledged and engineering degree and pilot and good to go, what, what kind of year was that? What was going on in the world in those, uh, at that point? Oh, let me think. Uh, so I, this is back in 2003 to 2004 timeframe. Uh, so 9-11 had just happened. And uh, I, w- I went into my, I want to say I went into my junior year when 9-11 just happened in, at West Point. And so we knew that we were, I mean, we were going to go into combat. We knew that uh, upon graduation and then through flight school. And uh, Iraq was getting really bad. Whenever I got out of flight school, I got sent and it wasn't by any choice. Actually, I was, I was supposed to go to Savannah, Georgia, and then it got changed to take me to Korea. And uh, so I was at Korea for two years for my first assignment after flight school. And the war was hot and heavy in both locations. And um, after I finished that assignment, I went to the 101st Airborne Division. And immediately upon arrival, you know, we were shipping out the door. And so I went to Afghanistan two times with the 101st and yeah, I mean, it was, it was busy, man. It was, it was, uh, not something that you want anybody else to, to see. That's for sure. Yeah. I can't imagine, mate. It's, it's crazy. Really. I mean, how quickly that must've just all materialized for you. And then all of a sudden, bam, you're in, you're in combat. at that point, I'd been playing army games for so long that it almost just felt like it was just normal. It wasn't anything that was a surprise. It wasn't anything that I hadn't anticipated or thought about for literally years at that point. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it was. I guess it was expected at that point because it had been going on for so long. But yeah, my first rotation. Uh, my second rotation is when they did the plus up in Afghanistan. So it was very busy and it was, uh, it was crazy during that, the second rotation. It was, it was very, I'll, 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 I'll call it crazy, right? Quotes, but yeah, it was, it was something to experience. It was, and it, and it shaped me, um, profoundly in just how I view other people and how I view life in general. Um, because you just have a deep, deep appreciation for life and you have a deep appreciation for how precious it, it all is. I mean, it's just indescribable walking away from that experience. Yeah. And well, for you, you managed to walk away from it um, in one piece and come out, you know, of sound mind. And of course, you know, that doesn't obviously happen to, to many people. Um, and am I right in thinking the 101st is that, that's like um, Band of Brothers fame. Is, yep. is that yep. correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where Easy Company um, were part of that. That's, that's mad. Yeah, it's, it was uh, the 101st pretty much was on a deployment every other year. They, uh, the, they were heavily called upon for more than a decade, a decade and a half or, or more. I mean, even to this day, they're still on a lot of deployments. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of tradition in that unit. Um, I was thoroughly impressed with the unit. I mean, it was top notch. That's for sure. And last geek question. Did you ever get to meet any of the, the D-Day guys that, um, the HBO special was, uh, on? um, oh my God, this, at West point, I want to say there was a time that, that those guys came up. 
Uh, but to, to have like a real one-on-one -on -one engagement now. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, uh, at West Point, they bring up, oh my God, they bring up tons of different speakers and things like that. It's kind of hard for me to even keep it all together. How <laughs> many different people kind of came up and talked to us, but, um, yeah, no, I haven't had any one-on-one -on -one engagements with those guys. Right. Cool. So how then do you make that transition away from, from all of that, uh, craziness, uh, career, um, and getting back into the U S and then starting what you've started now, uh, or, or was there something in between? No. So I just really liked numbers. And so that goes to my engineering background and I, I like to do math. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the army and you're, you're getting your paycheck and you're trying to invest and do all those kind of things, it just transitioned from that to me, just really enjoying that process. And then the, the value investing piece. So I started off and I said, who's the best investor, Warren Buffett, right? Let me study everything that every book that he's ever recommended and all that kind of stuff. And I just mimicked that approach and fell in love with it. I, I really enjoy that methodology for, for calculating something. And for me, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Anytime I look at a company, I'm constantly saying to myself, all right, well, what's it worth, right? <laughs> what's the jigsaw puzzle? Let me see if I can figure it out. And then I try to calculate it. I try to look at what the market's trading it for. And I just find that to be a really pleasant experience and something that I, to this day, just will automatically start doing whenever somebody starts talking business. I just immediately want to try to start calculating what I think the value of the company is. Uh, so it just evolved into me writing a book about it, um, doing a YouTube series around the methodology of value investing. And then the next natural step was to stand up a podcast around it and just interview people. And then that just totally evolved into all sorts of types of investing, not just value investing, but all these different forms of momentum. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of strategies out there and there's a lot of strategies out there that work for various personalities. So that was, that was something that took me a long time to evolve to, because I was, I was a value investing snob for a very long period of time. And doing the show had really opened my eyes to all these other ways to, to go about it and all these other ways to approach it. And, uh, I'll give you an example. When we, when we first started the show, uh, if you would have told me anything about gold, I would have just laughed in your face. I would have been like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, because that was, that's how Warren Buffett looks at it. Right. And I was, if he said it, then it was, it was the gospel. And so I would have never in a million years been open to Bitcoin if I just held to that belief, to that belief structure, because it's very much like gold. I mean, it, it's, it would have probably been even harder for me to look at Bitcoin than gold because it was digital and I would have just wrote the whole thing off. But we, uh, we were studying this book by Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins wrote this book after the crash and, and in, in his book, he just obsessively talked about Ray Dalio. And I mean, it was, it was over the top how much he talked about Ray Dalio in this book. And I was like, all right, so if this guy's so great, let me read up on him. So I started reading up on Ray Dalio. And I, the more I studied, I, the more I was like, okay, this is, this is because he gets into this long-term debt cycle that I had never heard about up to this point, not even once. 
And when I started pulling the thread on this long-term debt cycle, and of course he has the 30 minute video, and then I started finding things online, which aren't even there anymore. It's, it's pretty fascinating. His big debt crises book covers a lot of what used to be online, but there's some things that he had online that I was able to download prior to him going on this rampage of public appearances and stuff that really go into detail on the methodology of how he thinks about credit cycles and all that kind of stuff. And so I started just plowing into all of this stuff in, in a very heavy way is, is with as much vigor as I did with Warren Buffett. And to this day, I'd tell you that that methodology that he talks about with credit cycles and how money quote unquote works has probably shaped me just as much and maybe even more so than Warren Buffett. And it had a profound impact on me to be able to see Bitcoin clearly. Um, because when you, when you start studying that stuff and you understand that money is mostly credit in today's system and you understand how that expansion can happen, uh, you can understand the value proposition of, of Bitcoin with wide open eyes. Which begs the question again, and you know, my orange pill question to you, like the last show we did, if, if you had one orange pill left to give, who'd you give it to and why? And you, bam, Ray Dalio straight out the gate. Yeah. You didn't even like, how? I think it's because he, because he warped my perspective of financial markets more than anybody. I think anybody who would come in can, can look at the stuff that I learned from Warren Buffett, which is the valuation process, which is really just discount cash flow models at the end of the day. They all operate, those, those models all operate off of a very important assumption. And the assumption is this, you're dealing with sound money or money that's not being debased at a breakneck, breakneck pace. And Ray Dalio taught me through his writings and, and all that kind of stuff that we're at a point in time that that assumption is being breached. The assumption that we're dealing with sound money. And, um, I, I fully subscribe to the idea that our real inflation rate is M2. If we look at the M2, which is the base money supply. And what I said earlier, remember money is your base money plus whatever credits being built on top of it. That's the real money supply. So if M2 is expanding, then your credit that's built on top of that also has the opportunity to expand as long as banks are willing to take, take on that lending. And what we've seen is just an explosion of lending and credit and promises that are built on top of the, the grossly expanding base money, the M2. So when I, when, when I look at that and I say, all right, so our inflation rate is really kind of M2, which if we go back over the last 10 years, since the 2008 crisis, if you go back and you'd look at how much the M2 has been debased uh, since that period of time, you come up on an average uh, compound annual growth rate. If you do a compound annual growth rate over that period of time and you look how much it's been debased, we're dealing with like a 15% debasement rate. So if a business is, is profitable and they're only making a 5% profit, but the debasement rate is 15%, that company is losing 10% of their buying power every single year. And so when you're in that position, 
if, if you're that company that's, that's losing 10% of your buying power and you're finding it way harder to be competitive amongst your peers and all of those things, you can understand why we would have just a massive influx of leveraged buyouts and why we would have this, this dynamic of big companies eating the world and consolidation like no other period in time over the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years. And it all, it all becomes crystal clear when, you, when you're working with a foundation that describes what the money is. And so Ray Dalio provided that to me uh, in, in such a clear way that it was just so obvious to, to kind of understand that we're upon something very abrupt and, and very big that's about to happen in financial markets. And so for years, because I'd say I started discovering some of this Ray Dalio stuff back in 2014, I would say is whenever 2013, maybe something like that. Um, ever since discovering some of those ideas, I've been on a, on a hunt for how is, how does this get resolved? What's the solution to this? And I, I don't think policymakers can, can solve this. I think it has to be, I, I really think that the only way that it could possibly be solved is through a decentralized way that would supply it universally across the board to all nations collectively and Bitcoin's that, that thing. So if, if I was going to say why, and I'm sorry, I keep, uh, this is a long, <laughs> I'm not giving you a chance to ask questions. If, if I would, if I would tell you why I think that's true, it all comes down to the fiscal appropriators are going to continue to base the money because you have so much, you have so much consolidation that's happened and you have, you've created an incentive structure for people to borrow at such extreme levels that they're in debt up to their eyeballs. They can't, they cannot get ahead because they're so far, their head is so far under the water collectively. And so at this point, now you're starting to have turmoil in the population saying we need more stimulus. We have to have this for us to, to even have some semblance of livelihood in our, in our lives because we're so in debt. And so appropriators are going to have to keep, and, and it also goes to the, the price deflation piece. They have to keep debasing the money at this point. And if they have to keep debasing the money, you're going to see coordination with the treasury on the, on the monetary policy side with the central banks to facilitate it. And so there's no, there's no adult in the room anymore at all. Everyone is just saying, well, let's just provide this short-term solution, which is better than not doing anything in the short term. And, uh, and since this is a race amongst nations to, to debase because it creates an incentive structure for, for cheaper goods and services for that country that does it at the expense of, all, of everybody else in the system, I don't see anyone ever being able to, to stop the momentum that's behind this right now, unless it's something decentralized that steps in and creates a bunch of pain for, for the bad actors or for people that are holding debt. That's, that's the thing that solves this is if you're holding debt and a new money steps in and supplies a decentralized solution, all that debt's denominated in, in the, in the prior currency. And so it all blows up. And so that's the solution is that's how all this money gets basically reallocated in the hands of, of people. So what does that mean? If you're heavily indebted and you've got a loan on your house and you only have 20% principal and, and 
the the loan says you will pay it back in fiat dollars, you will, and it'll be heavily debased, and it'll be if as long as you got a job that's paying you, especially if you got a job that's going to be paying you in the new currency, it's going to be very easy to make payments on that loan for the next 25, 30 years. Wow, man, that um, yeah, there's a lot there to talk about. Um, first of all, the, the the book you mentioned, I remember it, Tony Robbins, yeah, Money Master the Game. Money Master the Game, and then he came out with a second one, which was like a an abridged version of it. I can't remember the name of it though. No, I don't remember that one, but I do remember the book, and I do remember him talking about Ray Dalio. So I can see exactly like the the, the rabbit holes that uh, you were falling into there. Um, when you when you were talking about, um, I know the other day you were talking with uh, with Michael uh, Michael Saylor uh, at MicroStrategy, and then explaining to Caitlin at the beginning about value investing, and linking this to our last show where you called that it was going to happen sooner or later, and there we did it did happen. Companies took their treasury into into Bitcoin. What do you? I mean, first of all, did you? think it was going to like be that committed by one particular company obviously we, none of us knew really of microstrategy at that stage um what what took you by surprise and then we'll we, then we'll dig into layer two what he's what he's up to now so the reason i was talking about that at the start of the year uh, about companies putting it on their balance sheet is because i had been doing that i had been putting bitcoin on my balance sheet since 2015 um, been using it with my company. And so I was just looking at it and saying, this is just the natural next step for publicly traded companies. Now, my expectation was that you would see a company, a, a big tech company probably be the first ones to do it in any type of fashion that would get some news and they would do it at maybe 1% or 5% of whatever liquid current assets they use for marketable securities. And, uh, I mean, Michael Saylor was the shot heard around the world because he didn't do 1%. He's, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to take all of my marketable security or, or liquid uh, retained earnings, and I'm just going to drop all of it into Bitcoin. And, and then the move that just happened two weeks ago is now he's issuing notes and he's going to buy Bitcoin with it. So I think that that act by Michael provided provided a really interesting dynamic that I was not expecting, which was a huge talking point. Because now it's just so obvious what it provides. If you had a company that only put, let's just say one to 5% of it on their balance sheet, you would not see it show up in the stock price, like anything what we're going to see with MicroStrategy. This is like, um, Jeff Booth likes to do this too. And, and when we have private conversations, we almost always step into, well, this is your opinion. Well, okay, well, let's take the left extreme and the right extreme. Let's say the whole world had 25% inflation. Now let's say the world had, you know, this. And when you, when you think in extremes, you're able to really kind of pick apart how something works. Uh, it gets to the essence of how something works. And when I look at MicroStrategy, that's what Michael has really kind of provided to the world. He's provided a very extreme example of, of what this is and what this is going to do to your balance sheet and to your company's uh, competitive nature, because it has so much, it has such a large war chest at this point 
you know, when I was talking to him, I, I said to him, I said, Hey, so you're, you've been in business for 30 years and you basically took all your retained earnings because the retained earnings that are liquid are really kind of, in my opinion, the real retained earnings, like the, the company uh, headquarters and like all the tangible things that help you do your job. Sure. They're retained earnings, but like, for me, what it really comes down to is how much liquidity of retained earnings do I have after all those years of working? And he took that 30 years worth of liquid retained earnings and doubled it in like six weeks. And you couldn't, you couldn't get a more profound example of what something is than that. And, and, and it's just getting started. Like, I just can't imagine what, what, that number is going to look like in 12 months from now, it's going to be mind blowing. So if you're a company and you're looking at this and, and maybe at first you were like, look at this, look at this idiot. You know, if you don't understand Bitcoin, that's what you're, that's what you're saying about Michael. But as you watch his stock price in the coming 12 months, it's going to be such a dramatic example of what this is. And it's going to cause a lot of people to do a double take and to go in and really do the hard work to try to understand him and understand what it is that he's doing. So I'm pretty excited about it. I don't think you could have had a better scenario, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And it, it's pretty crazy, actually, the amount of um, FUD that's come out around it. Uh, that that article that I sent you earlier about, uh, you know, comparing it to a Ponzi scheme and, and Madoff, and it's just like, oh, my God, like Wall Street, what is it's, going on? I wrote this uh, thread and I can't remember how I phrased it, but I, I said that the cuts to, cause I, I think when we, when you think about Bitcoin, it's a Trojan Hydra, right? For people that don't know what a Hydra, it's, it's this monster, this sea monster that when you cut its neck, another, another two heads grow out of it. Every time you cut it, there's, it doubles. Right. And I think that's what Bitcoin is. It's a Trojan horse because it's this del- delayed time fused kind of thing that's supplied by the four week, or I'm sorry, the two week difficulty adjustment in the four year having cycle. And uh, that time phase is just miraculous, right? How it, how it, how it has been able to entrench itself into the existing financial rails. And then it, the, the growth that then happens on top of that is the, the Hydra piece. And I, I put in the end of the thread that I think the cuts that supply the the thing that supplies the cuts to the neck of this Hydra called Bitcoin is really doubt and fear and hope and any word that you can pretty much put in there is the thing that keeps supplying the, the cuts to its neck because the more people doubt it and the more that people write articles like the one that you just described, the more entrenched it gets and the more, the more the, the, and I think we're beyond this point at this point, for sure. Uh, the regulators, uh, you know, five years ago, doubt was what allowed regulators to just leave it alone. Doubt supplied that because they looked at it and they said, all right, well, these people are obviously going to lose all their money. So why even regulate it? Let, let, let the fools be fools. So that doubt and that fear of it being anything or, or not belief of it being anything is what supplied the cuts to the neck of the Hydra that allowed it to keep multiplying and growing and growing and entrenching itself even deeper. So when I see people out there talking smack about it and saying, oh, you're going to lose all your money and it's a Ponzi scheme, it's tulips, I'm thinking, 
another cut to the neck, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Let, let's talk about his second play. And if you wouldn't mind uh, like laying this out, uh, because the, obviously many of the listeners love to think macro, but none of us really have dug as deep into many of these issues as, as you have. Uh, and big shout out to Andy Edstrom who called this play um, on, on a, on the Swan, he it was with you and Brady, right? Yeah. That uh, he laid out this this possible play, and then bam, here we have it. So um, it's called issuing notes. Is is that correct? Or convertible yeah. bonds? Um, there, there might be a few terminology uh, things that you might be able to clear up for us, and just walk us through exactly what the play is, so we can all understand from like uh, as if you were explaining to Lauren, for example. So the. The great thing about why Andy was able to see this, and Andy did a great job. I mean, he's a great financial analyst. I, I have so much respect for Andy. Andy saw that Michael didn't have any debt on his balance sheet. He was, he was a very financially stable company. The company's kicking off free cash flows. It has for the last 10 years. His top line is half a billion every single year for 10 years straight. And uh, so when Andy was looking at it, he's saying, all right, this, this company has the ability to take on more debt in a healthy way. When you start uh, calculating the value of a business, a business with a debt to equity ratio of 0.5 in the same top line and bottom line is going to have a higher valuation than a company that has a debt to equity of zero, believe it or not. And, it's, and it's, it happens because of the, the, the tax advantage that you get uh, through interest expense. And uh, so when Andy was looking at this, any, any good financial analyst is going to look at it and say, this company should take on some debt because they're going to come up with a higher market capitalization if they do, uh, because they're going to have higher earnings power by doing it. And, um, and this is all based on if you actually can employ the debt. Of course, you don't want to take on debt and not have a use for it. But in Michael's case, um, I think he could obviously take on debt and easily employ it, especially with our opinions on what we think Bitcoin's going to do. So Andy was looking at it from that vantage point and he's saying, all right, this guy needs to issue some debt and then he could go out and buy. And that's why Andy, and interestingly, I think the number Andy used was 200 million. Right. And when you look at the time of when we had the conversation, his liquid uh, retained earnings or however you want to call it, his, his marketable security portion of his, of his equity was half as much as it was when he made the issue because his Bitcoin went up by basically double. And so when you look at the issuance that he went into with 400 million, and I tried making this point online, I don't know that everyone captured it. Andy was right. Andy was dead right with 200 million at the time. But as, as everyone knows in Bitcoin, things move quick. And uh, when you double your money, now you can take out 400 million, right? <laughs> so... So that was the, that's where the, that's the impetus for this is because it's actually more advantageous for him. Uh, when you look at the, the rates that you can issue notes for 75 basis points and 0.75%, right? If somebody's going to give you money for 0.75% and you think you can get a 4% return, you're going to take that deal every day of the week. If you think you're going to get a 50% return, you're definitely going to take that deal every day of the week. Um, so that's, that's the part of this that, um, for me, it was a very no brainer kind of decision for Michael, uh, for his company. And I was really excited to see him do it because I think 
he's worked very hard. He's had a, he's had a great, uh, the, the health of the company is, is just incredible. So yeah, go do those kind of things. It's, it's healthy for the bond buyer, the people that are buying that debt. He has double the, the, the face value of the debt on his balance sheet. There's not a lot of companies that issue debt like that. So it's a very safe investment. When, when you look at how much free cash flows he kicks off, you know, I've been saying 30 million a year. I don't know what their, what their future outlook would be if they think it's higher or lower or whatever, but I think 30 million annually is, is a safe bet. And so when you look at the burden that he's going to incur off of a 75 basis point debt through the note, um, he can easily pay that off with his free cash flows. So all the money's already there when you're thinking about how he's going to repay this. So as far as the risk goes, I don't, I don't see it as a lot of risk. If Bitcoin, let's just say we're dead wrong about Bitcoin and the price would go down by 50% between now and, and the maturity date five years from now, he still has all the money to pay it back. And he's going to have made, uh, uh, what would it be? $150 million in that period of time based on how much it, so, you know, if I was going to explain it to Lauren uh, and, and, and Caitlin, I would just say, Hey, your dad makes a bunch of money. He has a bunch of money already in his bank account. He's taking out a small loan against it because he thinks that he can, he can buy something that's going to go up a lot in value. And if he's wrong, he can still pay, pay the person back that he's borrowing the money from. It's really as simple as that. Now the value proposition for the person buying this, because it's not just a one-way street for, it's just not a win for all the shareholders, the common shareholders. I would argue, I think it's also a win for the, the debt buyers. A lot of these, a lot of these hedge funds and entities that are buying this debt, they have to buy debt. Like they, they're in a position uh, regular in a regulatory way that they have to buy debt. So they're looking for as much upside as they can get. And when they're, when you're in a world where you're only able to get 75 basis points and you, you add into the backdrop of that, if you buy into my narrative of debasement, and Lynn Alden is another person who has this narrative of 15% debasement rate because of M2, you're losing 14.25% of your buying power every year. If you're buying a, or I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you're buying a, a note with 75 basis points. So they're looking, they're desperately, the, the buyers of this are desperately searching for yield in a, in a major way. And so how are they able to capture it? Well, they're looking at this. And if you're a person in the debt market and you, you like Bitcoin, you can't buy it because of regulatory means, right? Or regulatory uh, implications. So they're looking at this note and they're saying, holy God, I can, I, the convertibility clause of this note allows me to, sure, I only get 75 basis points between now and five years, but if this does what I think it's going to do, his stock is going to be well over $400 a share. And I get to participate in that upside because I can convert into the, into the common stock. So this is a really exciting opportunity for them. And I think when we saw that it was oversubscribed, because I think he was going after 400 or 450 million, and then it was oversubscribed to 650 million. Uh, I think that tells you everything you need to know is that there is a huge appetite for this. Now, where I think it gets even more fascinating is you think about, well, Apple, 
or any company with a massive amount of marketable securities currently existing on their balance sheet that they could even take a 5% position and we're now talking billions of dollars. I just can't even imagine what kind of, uh, I guess Pierre Richard is the one who, who termed the, the speculative attack on the dollar or any fiat currency for that matter. I totally buy into that. And I think that when this really starts to get aggressive and really starts to run away, that's what you're pretty much going to see happen is you're going to see not just one company, you're going to find hundreds, if not thousands of companies that are implementing a similar strategy um, where they're, they're taking advantage of maybe their good standing on their balance sheet and they're buying Bitcoin with it. And since it's considered an, uh, an asset like a, like a real estate and not a currency, uh, it's completely legal and it's, co- it's completely open for them to do without much, uh, without much concern. Do you think that this is the new, because we had the news this week as well, um, Zynga are doing the same kind of thing, right? Um, with these uh, convertible notes. Now, if I look back from 2008 to, to now, <clears throat> we had the, the share buyback bonanza. Like this is what companies were doing. They were buying back their own shares, hand over fist. Do you think this is the next big thing? that has just been kicked off. We're just going to see more and more of these plays coming out. No doubt about it. This is the <laughs> new share. This is the new share buyback. They, I would tell you 99.9% of market participants just don't know it yet. Right. But they're going to know it. <laughs> they're going to figure it out real fast. <laughs> this is it, right? This is, this is share buyback 2.0. And where's that cash going to go? And if you don't have cash, if you don't have free cash flows, you're not stacking them. And there's a lot of zombies out there and they're, they're going to get decapitated. The market needs this. It's, it does. If, if, you want, if you want free and open markets, that, that means you believe that the businesses that don't produce value or profits should fail. That's just it. So if you don't buy into that and you don't, you don't believe that if a business doesn't produce profit or value for its customer base and it should be kept alive, well, then you don't believe in capitalism and you don't believe in free, free and open markets. So um, I, I do. <laughs> I, I would like to think most people do. Um, and so if, if you do, you have to believe that businesses should fail when they're not doing that. And it's going to be great to see a medium Bitcoin that will just naturally supply that to the marketplace because there's not nothing anybody can do about it uh, otherwise. And yeah, that leads us perfectly into into Bitcoin and what your work around Bitcoin and how that's kind of um, being against everything that you've you've built uh, with around the, the, the podcast with the, the macro investment and, um, staying very, very close to stocks and bonds and, and fixed income, et cetera. Uh, you've launched your own Bitcoin podcast, which I think is amazing, by the way, I've listened Thank to the, you, uh, the first couple and I know exactly why you've done it. Um, and you put out a tweet the other day that, uh, you know, you're getting a little bit upset with the kind of pushback that you, you were getting from, from some listeners, when you would bring up Bitcoin uh, in your your general show, so could you do you mind just talking a little bit about that? And um, you know, obviously, you feel like we all feel 
that you have this kind of urge or responsibility that you want as many people to know about Bitcoin as, as possible. You already have this amazing platform where you can talk about it and get it into people's ears, but at the same time, you're facing a bit of pushback. So what's been the thought process around that and how's that kind of sitting with you? So people that listen to the show might think that my co-host Stig doesn't like Bitcoin and it, I'll tell you, it's the exact opposite in private conversations. <laughs> um, uh, we find it very important to have healthy debate about things. And, you know, just anyone who's participated in markets, when you're only talking one side of, of the issue that, that this is a great buy and you have no counter argument, you're probably at peak absurdity in the position. You're, you're probably about to lose all your gains. At least that's been my experience in, in markets. And so uh, Stig believes the exact same thing. And I believe that as well. Um, I think this, I think this is just a really, really unique once in a millennia type situation. So that's why I see it a little bit differently. And I, and I still believe that we should try to shoot holes through this. We should understand risks. Like I'm, I'm one of the first people that'll tell you, what is your sell signal or what is the signal that tells you maybe you got it wrong? And for me, it's if the hashing doesn't keep going up, if the hashing starts falling apart, that signals to me that, that there's, there is some serious rough waters and maybe trouble on the horizon with Bitcoin. We haven't seen it, right? So I have, I have these these risk uh, triggers that that I think about. And to be honest with you, for Bitcoin, that's my biggest one, and that's I don't I don't want to say it's my only one, but it's the one that I'm really paying close attention to. Um, Stig and I have both had, I mean, we've had these conversations for five years because we first covered it on our show in 2015. Um, and we, we realized real quickly that most of the people in the value investing community, and it goes back to what I was telling you earlier, if, if I would have, most people in the value, value investing community look at gold and they can't even wrap their head around it, they'll shake their, their head. So when we're there talking about Bitcoin, they're really shaking their head. Now, I think a lot of them are really coming around to it, to be honest with you. I think most people that listen to our show, the, the feedback on the few episodes that I've done that have been Bitcoin specific have been very positive from the people that, from the traditional investors that we've had that have been watching our show for many years. Not all of them, of course not, but um, we're happy with the feedback. Um, when uh, Stig and I were looking at it at the start of 2020 and you know, I made the comment to him based on the math, based on the stock to flow math, we should be at 20,000 by the end of the year. Um, and when, when that happened, I think Stig and I, you know, very recently we had a conversation and I said, dude, this is happening. Like this is going down. And, and when have we ever been able to forecast something with such precision and it be so right? So that to me was, was like, all right, so if this is true and this is, you know, going to a hundred thousand by the end of 21, by the end of 2021, um, we probably want to be creating media in this space because this is about to get crazy. And he completely agreed. He's like, all right, cool. So, um, you know, how, how do we go about doing this, but also still covering a lot of the stuff because I don't care who you are most people are not going to take a Michael Saylor type position where they, they push all their chips into the middle of the, and you don't need to, I think this is a really important point. 
You don't need to do that. If we're right about this, a 5% position is not only going to protect your buying power of whatever your net worth is today, it's going to exceed it at 5% just today, if we're right. So not everybody wants to become a gazillionaire and then shape the world with a buku's amounts of money because they took, you know, a, a, an all in kind of position. We get that. Um, so we, we still want to talk about equities. We still want, hell, we want to talk about everything, right? We want to talk about commodities, fixed income. We'll talk about all of it. We'll talk about the risks associated with all of it. We just feel like it's at a time where if, if this is really happening and it definitely appears like it is, um, this is going to be the biggest financial event in our lifetimes for sure, if not the millennia. And um, we're, we want to be there to cover it. We want to be there to be able to cover it in a way that is educational and um, so that's, that's pretty much how we're approaching it. And so Stig was like, all right, well, you, you've read a lot more about this stuff than I have. So why don't you take that angle? I'll keep doing the traditional show. We brought in a, a very close friend, uh, Trey Lockerbie, to assist with the traditional show that we do. Um, a little known fact about Trey, who's the new guy on the show, um, he's cousins with Becky Quick on CNBC. And, uh, and so we've known Trey for years. We've, we've gone to the Berkshire shareholders meeting together with Trey. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to get to know Becky a little bit through, through Trey. And, and we love him. He's, he's extremely smart. He, uh, he, he's had dinner with Warren Buffett. And I mean, he's got some really cool stories. He has his own uh, uh, kombucha company out in California. So he understands business from that lens. And that was really big for Stig and I is like, we don't want to bring somebody in who has, <laughs> this is going to sound smug. Uh, we don't want to bring somebody in with a hedge fund kind of point of view. We want to bring somebody in that thinks like a business owner. And if there's one thing that I'm really proud about our show, I feel like we always talk about uh, investing with that hat on instead of managing other people's money. We like to think from a business owner standpoint instead of I'm managing somebody else's money. Therefore, I need to keep my volatility low so that they don't take their money away from me, right? Because that's kind of the model. So I, th I think it gives us a unique advantage and a unique voice in the space. And so Trey brings that. And that's kind of how we've evolved as a company in the last 12 months with Bitcoin kind of being the driving factor of it. It's interesting because we're talking about how Bitcoin is driving these decisions of other businesses. And I can just see in my own business how it's driving and changing so much um, not just by putting it on the balance sheet or stacking it on the balance sheet, but just even how we're creating content and going about approaching the media that we're producing. And if this plays out, like we think it's going to over the next couple of quarters and more and more companies put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, then we get into this, you, you look at equities as value plays again, and it's just uh, a really exciting place to be. And for you guys to be straddling both of this is, uh, is, I mean, it's got to float your boat. Let's put it that way. It's, it's, it's a tricky course to navigate. I will say that it's <laughs> a lot of, there's a lot of uh, thin ice on the, on the pond. Um, well, by the way, you just said a kombucha business. What, what is that? Better Booch is the name of the company. Um, what, what, what's kombucha? Uh, 
so you're asking the wrong person, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a tea. It's a, it's a fermented tea that okay. is very, very healthy for you. It's a big deal here in the U S I, I, I want to say the growth rates are higher than 50% annually for people drinking this stuff. Well, right, Trey, okay. Trey could give you the details. Let me tell you, he could give you the details. Cause I mean, he actually has a pretty big company out there. Uh, he's fulfilling orders for, well, I, I don't know that I can disclose what he's fulfilling orders for but let's just say they're, they are really, really big, uh, companies that he's fulfilling orders for. Very cool. Well, I learned something about the tea business as well. Preston, how much, how much longer do you have? I don't want to keep you, uh, Oh, I'm, I'm good for another 20 minutes if you want to go. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely. Of course you mentioned money, uh, managing money there. And this is, and, um, you kind of referenced the stock to flow model by, uh, talking about, I think this is something as well that gets, um, completely misunderstood. Uh, when people look at these models and technical analysis and things like this, with Bitcoin, we've never. This is the first time we've ever had had the opportunity to build a chart around something we know is going to happen, and that we know when the when the halvings are coming and how much that is going to uh, to change, and we know the total issuance. Um, so to build a chart around that is something completely unique to the market, something we've never ever had the chance to do before. Um, and then you talked about managing money and the way you guys like to look at uh, coming at it from a business standpoint rather than a money management standpoint. And this debate, this hot topic around is the S2F going to hold up and yada, 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 is it going to break to the upside, break to the downside? Are we ever going to see another 80% drawdown? I, th I, I, would, I would like to ask you a question about the, this money coming in now from the hedge funds, from the money managers that are coming in in a big way. Uh, how do you feel about when we, when we do get to this point, which we think we're going to get to when we, you know, whether that's next year or the year after where we're getting crazy high numbers, how are those guys that are managing money going to feel about that? Are they going to start? I mean, the way I try and the way I try and explain it to people is they're coming in with a fiat mindset, looking for a fiat exit. Not just them, but every single one of their investors that they are representing. Uh, you know, if if you are managing this money and you've got to write a newsletter to convince your investors why you're going into this. Bitcoin, digital gold type thing, because the investors that none of these guys are down the rabbit hole, right? They're not here for what we're here for. And if they've got all of this piled into it, and if you're a hedge fund as well, you could be using some kind of levered product or derivative or options or whatever. How do you feel that might affect the next drawdown? if they all start rushing for the doors because they just want their fiat. I, I don't know how that's going to shape out for them. I think that they are going to have a major challenge on their hand. Uh, first convincing their, their clients to allow them to do it without losing face and without them pulling uh, the funds out of the fund, pulling the funds out of the fund, pulling the money out of the funds that they have. Uh, 
that's going to be a challenge. And then let's just say that, that they don't go about trying to convince them to do it until you're getting a little toppy and there is a correction. Let's say that we don't go into a situation where this is, this basically takes over and, and we have an escape velocity kind of event. They might convince their, their investors to buy this at the exact wrong time. And then it goes down and then they, they got to deal with that pain. I, I don't know. I really don't have a good answer for you, but I will say this. It's going to be tricky. No matter what, it's going to be tricky for them. For anybody that, that participated in the 2016, 2017 bull market, it felt like no matter what you did, you were going to do the wrong thing. Because let, let me just run an example of the, of the bull market we're in right now. People are looking at it today and we're basically at 20,000. We're really close to 20,000. And a person saying, well, I can't buy it right now. It's, it's at an all-time high. It's going to have a correction or whatever. I'll buy it on the next dip. When the next dip happens, it's going to be so abrupt. They're going to say, oh, I missed the top. This is going to be the big sell-off, right? It's just, it's just this ongoing psychological game that they're going to keep playing with themselves. Then it's going to rebound, and then it's going to be making a new all-time high. And then they're going to be saying to themselves all, the whole thing all over again. Because I think at the end of the day, very few have done the amount of homework that's required to understand how the, the deficiency of supply in the system for the post having period, how long that takes to play out, what, how much the, the price runs percentage wise after such an, such an event, whether they think that that amount will happen again in the future. You got all those types of narratives. I mean, I see people saying, Oh, this is going to be a longer cycle because the cycles appear to be, uh, expanding and all sorts of things. So I think that that's going to be a total mind drain and uh, difficulty for people to navigate, especially if you're managing other people's money and they're, and they're looking to you to say, I don't understand this. Just do it for me. And when you make a bad decision, I'll be sure to let you know. That's, right. that's pretty much, that's a hedge fund, right? <laughs> And that's why I have no interest in ever being a hedge fund manager. That was the first lesson I learned from, from Warren Buffett was why, why is this guy not a hedge fund manager? Like why? And he used to be. So why did he make that transition to not being one? Well, he saw all the advantages of owning a company and taking advantage of that type of thinking instead of being a victim of it. And so I learned very early on that I wanted to be like him and own a company and not be a hedge fund manager. Not that there's anything wrong with being a hedge fund man. I, I just, I looked at Warren Buffett and I said, well, why is this guy not doing it? And so when I started asking those questions, why, then I understood why he wanted to own a business. And that led me to want my, want, want me to own my own business. Yeah. It's a hell of a responsibility when, when you're managing that much of other people's money. I couldn't imagine. And, and with this beast the, yeah. of Bitcoin, I'm almost kind of not surprised that they've taken so long to get into it because it is just so damn difficult to understand. And there's no way in the world that they'd be able to convince their, their customers, their investors, that this is a good play. It's when, when you look at the, the art of being a good hedge fund manager, you have to reduce volatility and still have the returns. And typically those two things don't go hand in hand. Now you compound it when they, they have to manage narratives. 
if you're a hedge fund manager and you even take a 0.0001% position in Bitcoin, okay, it's going to have no volatility impact at all with that position size, right? But the narrative that a hedge fund manager so-and-so owns Bitcoin runs, and boy, does it run, okay? So they have to manage that, and uh, they, could lose, they could lose 5% of their clients just because of that narrative alone. Somebody would say, well, if this guy's in Bitcoin and I hate it, I'm taking all my money out of there and I'm going to go over to so-and-so's hedge fund. That's what they're up against. And so when you see so much uh, pushback from the hedge fund industry because they're managing other people's money, it's not their money. They're managing other people's money. Um, they can't make a Michael Saylor kind of decision because guess what? That's his money. And if you own all the voting rights and only 1% of the the, the uh, earning rights, you can still act like it's all your money. <laughs> and so that's another, that's another lesson that I learned about owning a business is voting rights are way more important than earning rights <laughs> because the only reason to own your own business is because you don't want to work for somebody. But if you don't have all the voting rights or a controlling share of the voting rights, you're still working for somebody, <laughs> right? So, and, and you can split those out. Like if you create a company and somebody wants to come and invest, like you can take their money, but you better do something about the voting rights. I, I would, if, if I was in a position where my business was not profitable, I've, I've fortunately never been in this position, but if I was in this position where my business was losing money, I had to bring on a new investor in order to raise funds and come up with some type of creative solution to become profitable. I would give up so much of the earning rights to, to retain the, the voting rights of the business that I still had the controlling share. Now, I might not get somebody that gives me the money with that approach, but you better darn well believe that would be my primary concern because it's, it's all about having that. It's all about not having to answer to anybody. In, in my personal opinion, that's what I have wanted and desired for a very long period of time before starting my business. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are lessons that I learned from reading a lot of different books on business. And you talk to entrepreneurs that are on their second company and they treat the corporate governance way different than they did on the first, first go around way different. So yeah, when I, when I hear, oh, we're in series A, we're in series B, we're in series C, I'm thinking losing voting rights, losing voting rights, losing voting rights is, <laughs> is what goes through my head when I hear stuff like that. Right. <laughs> do, do you think that does, does this link back to the military that this um because there's always someone to answer to in the military right? i think it does i think that's a great point i and i never thought of it from that perspective but you, maybe you're exactly right that, that makes total sense that, I, I love <laughs> that you just told me that because you just taught me something about my my thought process <laughs> that i've never even put two and two together but i guess from an outsider that would be really intuitive uh, yeah you know yeah i'm done with being told what to do I've yeah. uh, had uh, God knows how many years of that in my life. <laughs> a lot of years, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> and one one other thing there to, to link it back to, to the military as well um, and try and link it to, to Bitcoin because there's always some facet of Bitcoin and there's always something that's happened in our past. I, I find that there's like a direct line where you can join two dots. And you, at the beginning of the show, you were talking about gives you like the, the, this huge respect for for life and that helped shaped your your thinking going forward and what you're going to do with the rest of your life how does 
like that tie in with Bitcoin and this concept of time that we all feel when we start interacting with Bitcoin and, and stacking our sets. I just, I look at every action that I take more, more so every intention that I take as being reciprocal. And uh, so if I have a bad intention, I, I feel like somehow, some way the universe supplies a, a return equal and opposite force back to me for whatever intention I have. So um, I pretty much operate off of that fundamental principle. And whenever I, I, I think a lot of that came to me just through deep thought and thinking about like, why am I going through, why am I in a war zone right now? Right. Why am I experiencing this? What, what is the lesson and why, why am I being put through this? And the only thing that I could kind of come to at the end of the day with all of it was that my intentions are reciprocal and what, whatever it is that I'm putting out there into the, into, I don't want to use the word ether, um, but whatever I'm putting out there into my environment is going to be reflected back to me just like a mirror. And uh, I think, some people can get confused by this, this idea um, because they think it's based on actions. And I don't necessarily think it's based on actions. I think it's based on intentions. And I think that the longer that the, and, and I think the universe doesn't return it. It, it returns it whenever it, it fits the, the gears to return it. So if you have a good intention and you act on it, and you help somebody out, it doesn't mean that it's going to come back to you tomorrow. It might come back to you in 30 years, right? And I believe that if it does come back to you in 30 years, it comes back with some form of interest because that's just how things work here on, you know, just between us humans as we, as we interact, it always has some type of interest implications or some type of compounding because nothing's linear. It's, it seems to all be on some type of curve. And um, so I think when it returns to you, that intention returns back to you for your payment. Um, I think that the longer that the universe holds out on, on returning it, it comes with some form of, of interest to it. So I try to think in terms of, uh, and Twitter's a great place for this because sometimes you'll get involved in these conversations. I mean, I just had one with, with Brent Johnson that just got, totally got out of hand. Right. And when I step back and I look at like, why are you saying this? Like what, is there an insecurity that's driving this? Like, what is your intention, Preston? I, I ask myself that a lot. What is your intention with this conversation? Are you, are you writing this to inform? Are you writing this to, 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 for your own self-benefit, right? Is, is really kind of, is this for me or is this for others? And, and of course you never get it right. I, I get it wrong all the time. And, when I do, I almost always find that I'm doing it for selfish reasons. And, uh, and I would, I would argue like, like in that situation, it was returned to me at lightning speed. The universe came back and said, all right, smacked me in the face a couple of times and was like, uh, here's your return payment. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a philosophy that I, I would imagine most people don't agree with, or they, they find it strange, but for me, it has worked extremely well. And, and it, it helps me, uh, really kind of focus on judging myself opposed to judging others. Um, and when something bad comes my way, I guess I just always approach it with, well, you deserve that in some way. You might not understand why, but you, you did something that, to deserve that. And 
And it helps you f- always focus on yourself opposed to saying uh, of being a victim. That's, that's what I tell you is that is a real big uh, benefit of the thought process that I'm describing is you uh, rarely look at something and say, I'm a victim of this. You pretty much say I'm a hundred percent responsible for what's happening to me right now. And now what can I do to change it? And how can I shape my environment with the tools that I have uh, or, or the levers that I have to impact it? So that's some of the stuff that I think in an indirect way, being in a, in a combat environment and just kind of those early life experiences kind of led me to that belief structure. Yeah. Very cool, man. Very, very cool. And I know you've got to go very soon. So I'll ask the final question. It might still be the same answer. It's up to you. Uh, if you had one orange pill left to give, who would you give it oh, to? And Lord. Why? Well, I can't give it to Ray cause I think he's already orange. <laughs> uh, hmm. I'd say Tim Cook would probably be the next one. I think right. that would be it. I think that'd be a really good one or Jeff Bezos. Um, and who knows? Maybe they, maybe they are already, uh, maybe they're already taking the pills. Uh, who knows? I, I would be surprised if, if they haven't had a lot of conversations about the pills. <laughs> it's got to come up in a meeting, right? Once or yeah. twice a week. It's yeah. just crazy. Uh, and be, do you, do you know what's the least amount that a, a public company can invest without having to, uh, you know, telegraph it to the wire that they've done that? Is there, is, is it like you know, less than percent or I don't know the answer to that. Um, that'd be interesting to know. I would think it's higher than 1%. I would, I would guess 10 or 15%, but I really don't know the answer. So if somebody's wanting to know that they need to look it up. Yeah. I wonder if there's any sleepers out there that have already um, done it and just not announced. That'd be interesting to know. It wouldn't surprise me with the way the price action has been moving this past quarter. It, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Okay, Preston, this has been awesome, man. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Where can people come and find you and what's the best way to uh, look up your new podcast and uh, and anything else that you're up to? The the new podcast is just in the same feed that we had before. The show is called We Study Billionaires. It comes out every, the, the Bitcoin specific show comes out on Wednesday. The regular stock investing in, in uh, financial markets discussions, macro discussions, value investing discussions. Those are on Saturday. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, just at my name, Preston Pish, all in the handle, capital P's on, on the first and last name. And that's it, man. I appreciate that. I really enjoy talking with you. You, you are really <laughs> great at asking really cool questions. So thanks for having me on, Daniel. Thanks, man. And I look forward to doing this again soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it, brother. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again, Preston, for taking the time to come on. Hope you all enjoyed that one. Like I said, we recorded that just this morning when the price was around $19,500. Very early in Preston's morning. He's a beast. He's up at like 5 a.m. Probably uh, an old habit from his military days. And he gives up so much of his time to do these podcasts. And it, I think it's just so great to be able to bounce these ideas around and ask these questions of people like Preston that have spent so much of their time looking into value investing or fixed income or bond markets, understand exactly what's going on, looking at it now through the lens of Bitcoin and really being able to 
wrestle this financial beast to the floor and the way he sees it now it's it's so clear he sees the next 10 years he sees where this is happening he called the move for corporate treasury to bitcoin back on our last show and it's it's amazing actually in this space the amount of calls that people are getting right so he called this one preston called this one then andy called the uh, the next play by microstrategy and you got to think, you know, with, with guys like this on our side, and these are just two small examples of what's going on in the space. With, with these guys on our side, you, you kind of like, it, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion, but here we are, new all-time highs. We've all been, well, many of us have been suffering through this, this crypto winter, whatever you want to call it. Don't say crypto, Bitcoin winter, whatever you want to call it. This debilitating elongated bear run that we've all kind of hodled through and here we are and we can we can see it's all fitting back into place everything that we believe everything we think this thing stands for is going to start unveiling itself another layer at a time and it's going to bring more and more people into the space now this new all-time high has been set we will go on and set another one and then another one and then even more people are going to come in. The network effect is going to take off and even more companies uh, and more hedge funds. So if you're not stacking yet, you should be and you know where to go. If you're in the UK, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten, you can make one-time buys there. That is an exchange. And you can, of course, set up the auto buy, which is always recommended. So you can just stack into this a week at a time. And if you're in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten, they have you covered. You can one-time buy as well. Or as again, I want to stress, start slow. Weekly stacks. That's the best thing you can do with what you can afford. And just sit back for the next 10 years and keep educating yourself. Keep listening to people like Preston. Make sure you go out and check out his new podcast and Please reach out to him on Twitter. He'll be retweeting this episode. It'll be great if you guys can uh, just comment underneath and uh, send him some love. All right, guys, I will stop the ramble. Go and enjoy a bottle of something. Happy 20K day. And uh, let's let's go. Catch you guys. Bye-bye.